All right, Nahum chapter 3. We're in the final, final chapter here of this uh, prophecy. It's been a number of weeks, number of months since we started. Uh, just a quick review. Uh, who can tell me uh, what chapter 1 is about? It's about the doom of Nineveh, what? Declared. All right, we're going to walk away. You're going to remember. The doom of Nineveh declared, which is our, uh, this is where Nahum gives us a vision of, of our God, this divine warrior, uh, primarily a description about God, not so much about the situation in, in Nineveh and the sins of, uh, and the atrocities of Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire, but primarily about God, and it's this sort of forecast of Nineveh's future uh, destruction. Uh, answering the question, who will destroy Nineveh? Uh, we know the Babylonians came in and were a, p- a part of this, but behind that is the Lord, who is a God of vengeance and a God of wrath, who is bringing Nineveh to, to uh, justice. Chapter two, 2 is the doom of Nineveh. What? All right, the doom of Nineveh described. This is where we have... Uh, this is where we have the details, uh, specific details regarding the actual fall of the city. As we've mentioned, so many details, um, a description that's so specific that many have challenged whether or not this book is prophetic at all uh, or if it was something that was written after the fact of descri- describing those events. Uh, and this answers the question, how will the Lord destroy it? And again, just amazing, a very vivid uh, description of what, what goes on at that particular time. Uh, when Nineveh is, is uh, really uh, overrun uh, by the Babylonian armies. We're now in chapter 3, which is the doom of Nineveh deserved. The doom of Nineveh deserved, and this is answering the question for us, why will God, why will Yahweh destroy this city, uh, city and bring the Assyrian Empire to, to an end? Now, we got into chapter, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Uh, we noticed that Nahum listed several of Nineveh's crimes or their vices. We mentioned four of these, and there are four drawn really right out of the text. The first one that uh, is mentioned here is violence. So vice number one is violence. Uh, we, we, we looked at, we even saw reliefs and pictures from history where this is described, uh, the Assyrians skinning people alive, uh, cutting off heads, hands, fingers, noses, ears, gouging out eyes, burning people alive, uh, all sorts of, of things. Uh, really to intimidate uh, the people. So, again, this wasn't some sort of broad spread thing that they would do, but when they did go into an area and they would take over uh, a, a people or a city or a region, they would oftentimes take especially the key people in that area, the, the leaders, the political leaders, the military leaders, they would make an example of them by doing these things which would essentially strike fear in those people so that when they enforced taxes, uh, and tried to maintain control over that area, the people were afraid that if they didn't do what the Assyrians said they should do, that these same things would happen to them. So just a form of manipulation. Um, there also, we mentioned the, the vice number two was deceit. The text mentions here that they were full of lies. Uh, this interplay of alternating threats and promises where they would promise the people certain things and then they would threaten them if they didn't. In most cases, even if the people chose not to Uh, do what the Assyrians told them to do. The Assyrians didn't come through on what they had said, uh, so they didn't fulfill their word in most cases. Uh, They made these promises, but uh, most of the time these promises were were empty. 
Uh, Vice number three was plunder. Uh, We mentioned that they were a very wealthy nation, but most of the time their wealth didn't come from their own. Uh, They didn't didn't create the income and the wealth. They stole it. Um, They stole their wealth from the people that they um, that they overtook in these various campaigns, uh, and it was pretty pretty devastating uh, uh, the way they would go in and just completely level these cities and just leave nothing but ruin behind. The vice uh, vice number four was witchcraft. Uh, so they were very the very superstitious people, uh, cult practices, astrology. Uh, they had a pantheon of false deities. And because of all this wickedness, because of all this deceit and all this violence, all this murder, all this plunder, all this witchcraft, the Lord declares for the second time, and he does this in, in chapter 3, that he is against Nineveh. And then the Lord promises in this, these first seven verses to publicly humiliate and to kill her. In fact, he describes her as a harlot in one of the practices we talked about. It was very common, not just in the Assyrian culture, but in other cultures of that day, that they would, in, in many cases, when they would find a, a prostitute or a harlot, they would bring her to the center of town. They would lift up her skirt or dress as a form of publicly humiliating and shaming her, and then they would essentially kill her in the middle of town to make an example of her. And so what Nahum does is he just takes a very common practice of this day, and he says, listen, Nahum, or, or the Ninevites have have acted this way, they've acted shamefully, and so God is going to publicly disgrace them, and then he is going to kill her or bring her down um, in, in a very uh, dramatic and, and ultimate way. So she's, she's going to be an object of scorn, and in the end, no one will mourn her demise. Nobody's, nobody's going to show up for her funeral. <laughs> uh, she's going to die, she's going she's gonna, to she's gonna fall, Nineveh's going to fall, the Assyrian Empire is going to crumble, and no one is going to attend the funeral, even though many will rejoice in the fact that she's coming down. There's, there's so many w- wicked and evil things associated with her that it's as if no one wants to come to the funeral, even though in their hearts they're, they're doing this, which we'll see in the last verse of chapter 3. They're rejoicing that she's coming down. They're rejoicing at her public shame and her death. And yet there's so many things associated with her that nobody wants to attend the funeral because they're afraid that people might get the wrong idea. That, well, the so-and-sos attended the funeral. Were, were they good friends? Did they know each other? In other words, they're afraid of even being around it. And so they literally back away and they leave her all to herself. So let's just read here just to sort of get in the flow of things. Let's read the first seven verses and then we'll, we'll continue on. Woe to the bloody city, verse 1, chapter 3, completely full of lies and pillage. Her prey never departs, the noise of the whip the noise of the rattling of the wheel, galloping horses and, and bounding chariots, horsemen charging, swords flashing, spears gleaming, many slain, a mass of corpses, and countless dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies, all because of the many harlotries of the harlot. The charming one, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations by her harlotries and families by her sorceries. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will lift up your skirts over your face. And show to, to the nations your nakedness and to the kingdoms your disgrace. I will throw filth on you and make you vile and set you up as a spectacle. And it will come about that all who, who see you will shrink from you and say, Nineveh is devastated. Who will grieve for her? Where will I seek comforters for you? So this morning we will we'll attempt to work our way to the end of this 
this prophecy. So let's just continue on here. In fact, somebody needs to adjust the, the air or the heat or something because I think it's gone up 10 degrees since I've been standing here. So <laughs> somebody flipped the switch. Uh, but I was, uh, I was chilly when I came in, and I'm on, I'm on fire up here. So it's, uh, we're going to talk about fire in this text, but I don't think that's why I'm so hot. So uh, verse 8. He says, are you better than no Ammon, which was situated by the waters of the Nile and with water surrounding her, whose rampart was the sea, whose wall consisted of the sea? Now, what he does here is he, he brings up this city, uh, no Ammon. It's, uh, you may even have in the, in the column of your Bible uh, a reference saying this is, this is the city of Thebes. Um, it's in the modern day, it's Luxor, L-U-X-O-R. But this was a, a great city. It was a, it was a capital city off and on uh, throughout the uh, Egyptian, uh, a number of the Egyptian dynasties. So it's great capital city of, of, of uh, Upper Egypt. The word no there is just a word for the best of cities. Uh, nothing, you know, mystical about that. Uh, Amon is the name of the Egyptian deity. You may have uh, heard, and it's, there's so many different spellings to this. But Amun Re or Amun Ra, there's a lot of different way, uh, ways this is uh, spelled or pronounced. But that's essentially it's just saying that the city of this God, all right? Amun, Amon is the pronunciation here in this particular text. Essentially, this is the king of the gods. Uh, in, in Egyptian history, and you may remember back, you know, back in the time of the Exodus, Egypt for centuries was essentially a polytheistic. Um, I mean, they believed in multiple gods. But what had happened by this particular time in Egypt's history is they actually came pretty close to monotheism. Uh, they basically, instead of having all these different gods, they began to sort of whittle those things down. And in their minds, um, Amun-Re was the, was the chief god of the Egyptians. Um, he was, uh, in other words, these, these other gods were reviewed as, in a way, just mere symbols of his power. So sort of different manifestations, but in, they, were, they were really headed in the direction of just saying, this is the, the God. This is the, the, the one God. Didn't quite get there, but that is the, sort of the, the trajectory. Uh, so we have Amon, this chief God of the Egyptians. Uh, on, on Egyptian relics, he's a figure with human body, uh, a ram's head. Well, actually, we may see some of this. I've got some slides here for you. Um, so, in fact, let me... Um, this city that uh, he's referencing, uh, let me see here. Well, we'll go through. Okay, I've got this just for, just for reference. We're talking about, because what, what, what uh, Nahum is doing here is he's simply pointing to something in his recent history. And he's telling Nineveh, uh, you guys, the, the, the Assyrians brought this great city of Thebes down. Uh, a city that most people would have said was, was impossible to bring down. And so if the Assyrians can come in and can destroy and overtake the, this capital, this great capital of Egypt, then uh, what makes you think that you're going to stand? In other words, if Assyria can come and do that, Nahum is basically saying, Nineveh, what chance do you think you have against the Lord of hosts? 
because there's a lot of similarities between the city of Thebes and the city of Nineveh at this particular time. So we've, he's referring to this right here, this 663 B.C. Nahum is prophesying in this time period, and so he's just simply referring back to something that the, his, his readers would have been very familiar with. This is recent history. This city of Thebes has, has, has fallen in recent days. Now, uh, here we meant, here's, we've got a picture of the Assyrian Empire, 7th century, so the time period that we're talking about. You'll notice that Assyria basically works its way into Palestine. Here, this is Judah. Uh, this is Nineveh up here with the arrow. So they come down, and this is the extent of the, of the kingdom. In other words, this is as far as they go, but they come into uh, what this is called Lower Egypt. This is the opposite of what you... This is Lower Egypt, and this is Upper Egypt. You know why that is? Because the river flows what? North, okay? So this is the Nile River. So you have... This, this is the Cairo area up in this way. Here's the delta. They come, they come in this way, and they make their way all the way down here. This is no Ammon or Thebes. Uh, this is the, the, the reference that he's making here. So just to give you an idea, this is as far, all that purple area, um, that's the, the extent of the, uh, the uh, Assyrian Empire. This is another uh, sort of a, a shot of that uh, city. We've looked, these are just some shots of Nineveh, uh, which we've talked about uh, in, in the last few weeks. This is the bank of the Nile. So he's again. This is a this is a very good place to have a fortified city, okay? Because you essentially have this massive water source, and then the particular city of Thebes actually had these various canals that came off of that. So they were they had this sort of protection, um, in in some ways they had because they were had this water on on one side. Uh, you notice what's back here though. I mean, this is what made them so. Uh, so protected is because they had the water here. And if you look, uh, in fact, let me see. I might have a picture of, of this later on. All right. That must be a huge file because it's churning. No, I don't want to go there. I just want to go to the next thing. There we go. Here's, here's just a shot of Thebes. These are just some of the, some of the um, uh, ruins of Thebes. It's much, it's much bigger than this. Okay, this is, this is the temple that on the eastern bank. Uh, we have two, two, two main temples. You have the Temple of Karnak and the Temple of, of Luxor. Um, you can see here, all right, what do you see? These guys right here, and these things are everywhere throughout this city. But huge 40, 30 to 40-foot columns, and then what, are, what does this look like here? What are those heads? Okay, but uh, they look that way. I mean, that's what it kind of reminds us of. Those are ram's heads. Okay, so here, these, this, this is this massive temple. You can go there. Um, some pretty, pretty neat stuff to uh, see. This, there's some other. Here's another shot of that. Uh, this is the temple of, uh, at Luxor, uh, lit up at night. Uh, so you have on one side, so you have the Nile River here, and this being the delta. So we're coming down here. This is uh, Thebes. It was kind of on both sides, but primarily on this eastern side with these canals that ran around. And through the city, you had these two temples located here. And so, but basically, beyond that, how do you, is desert 1E, 1S or 2? Thank you. So we have, we have desert, and you can see it in that shot. I mean, you, if you look at all the cities along the Nile, there are no other cities outside, the, off the river. Uh, it, it, they can't survive. There's not enough water. It's basically desert on the east, desert on the west. So all the main cities are along this, but that's what gives them such a, a great defense. Because if you're going to attack this city, you've got to cross that desert from the east to get there. 
And if you're going to come from this way, you've got to do the same thing. So you pretty much are forced to have to stay next to the river, which they have all kinds of cities along this that, can, that uh, provide fortification defense. So you've got this, you've got desert on this side, you've got desert on this side. Over here, before you get to this desert, this real rocky region, you have an area called the Valley of the Kings, and this is it. This is on the west bank of the Nile. And you can see where they basically, some of these, uh, these tombs and these temples, are, they just dig them right into. I mean, they just chisel them out, and they go right into the rock, uh, into the mountainside. I mean, these things are, it's, it's hard to even get an idea. I'm trying to look for a person. I think so. Yeah, yeah. A lot of these uh, big uh, these pharaohs, they're, 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 there's a shot. So you get an idea of what that's looking up, going up into it. But just it's just amazing what they. You know, we think these people didn't know what they were doing. Uh, that they're just like cavemen or something. When you read about these swords flashing and spears, and you, folks, these guys are these. They're intelligent. They're smart. They're they're savvy, uh, and had invented all kinds of, of weapons of warfare. Um, it's, uh, it's really amazing to, uh, to see some of the things that they designed and built. I mean, it's like something out of uh, Indiana Jones, right? I think that is in one of the movies. Or <laughs> I mean, you see it and you wonder, is that just, uh, is that they just make that, is that in Hollywood? Well, in some cases, they're actually on, they're on, they're on scene in some of, these, uh, some of these movies. I mean, this is, this is incredible, the way, they, the way they carve these things out like that. Um, so here you go. Here's some of the main. So here's all these red dots. These are the cities. <laughs> so you just notice there's you've got this western desert here. You've got the eastern desert here in the ocean. But again, you've got to make you've got to be able to survive that to get to these cities. And again, if you're if you come this way, look at all the places you have to go through to get there. So there's some a lot of similarities in that. I mean, Thebes is a city that people would have thought you can't take that city. Well, guess what the attitude of the Ninevites was. They were also situated along a river. Remember that? What river was it? The main one? The Tigris? So they've got this major river. They've also got this canal of sorts of smaller tributary that actually runs through their city. They are surrounded as well by desert areas. And so they had this sort of same confidence in themselves that, well, an army can't defeat us either. And so that's, that's some of the, uh, the correlation that's going on here is he's actually using this event this fall of Thebes by the Assyrians at the hands of the Assyrians as a reference point uh, to, 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 make this, uh, to make this statement. And so, you know, uh, Thebes is on the Nile River. This is her greatest defense. Uh, the river, the canals, the desert, all those things. And notice what he says in verse 9. He says, Ethiopia was her might, and Egypt too, without limits, Put and Labim were among her helpers. And so, Again, he's, he's, he's talking about Thebes here, and he's, he's essentially saying that Nineveh should not expect that her end would be any less severe uh, than that of no uh, Ammon or, or Thebes. In fact, she should assume that it would be worse because Thebes had strong allies, but the Ninevites and the Assyrians did not. So he's actually saying it's even going to be worse in some cases for Nineveh because the one thing Nineveh didn't have because we notice in a minute everybody's clapping, right? Nobody's coming to help. She didn't have a lot of strong allies. Now, she kept people in check, but the point that he's making about Thebes is that Thebes actually had some strong allies. Thebes actually had some, some people that, that they could have called upon in, in time of, of war. She could, she could count on Ethiopia. Uh, he mentions that. 
Uh, she had the large manpower of the entire land of Egypt, which is really just a reference to lower Egypt located further, further down the Nile. Uh, and, and what he says there about that in verse 9 is that that, that manpower is, real, is without limits. Uh, I mean, a, a huge, huge force. In fact, this is the same word back in chapter 2, verse 9, when he mentions um, uh, plunder the silver, plunder the gold, 2-9, for there is no limit to the treasury. He's just saying that, that the treasure is immeasurable. In, in it's incalculable. He takes the same word and brings it over here and says the resources of Thebes were like this. I mean, they had, they had these uh, a huge uh, force I- within their own country, but then they also had Ethiopia. They also had the armies of Put, which a lot of debate on wh- where that is. It's I put it. Uh, the reason I marked out Somalia is because that's a, that's probably that's I think a, a general idea of what they're referring to that particular area. In fact, maybe even over in Yemen. So not just this area here, but Yemen is in this area here. It's just saying essentially they could have called on on them uh, for help. Lubim, which most people agree is uh, that northern part of Africa. In, in most cases, uh, it could have been uh, Sudan, but I've put uh, Libya here to the west of Egypt. So essentially what he's saying is they had help from all sides because they could pull from lower Egypt, which is to their north, Thebes to the north of Thebes. They could go to the west to, to Libya. They could go to the south to Ethiopia, or they could go to the east to the Yemen area, the Somaliland area. That they, they had all of these allies, uh, all these relationships at their uh, that could have been depended upon to come to aid uh, to the aid of Thebes in her hour of need. And yet, despite all of this support, Thebes suffered defeat in captivity. So he's just making this comparison. He's just saying, Nineveh, what chance do you have? Because you don't even have allies. <laughs> you don't even have people that, if you were to call, if you were to blow the, blow the horn, blow the ram's horn, blow the whistle, send up the flare, fire the rocket, whatever, it, it, nobody's coming. No, nobody, because you have no friends. You've, made, you've only made enemies. You, you have no allies. Verse 10, it says that yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Also, her small children were dashed to pieces at the head of every street. They cast lots for her honorable men, and all her great men were bound with fetters. Now, this is a historic reference, again, in verse, in verse 10, to the, ca- the capture of Thebes in 670 B.C. by Assyria and the time when it was pillaged by uh, Ashurbanipal of Assyria seven years later, which is that 663 date that was on our uh, on our chart uh, a few minutes ago. Now, Isaiah prophesied concerning the fall of Egypt. Um, if, you, if you were to go over to Isaiah chapter 20, uh, in Isaiah 20, it's a short, uh, short chapter there, but this is what he says here in verse 1. He says, In the year that the commander came to Ashdod, when Sargon, the king of Assyria, sent him, and he fought against Ashdod and captured it, at that time the Lord spoke through Isaiah the son of Amoz, saying, Go and loosen the sackcloth from your hips, and take your shoes off your feet. And he did so, going naked and barefoot. And the Lord said, Even as my servant Isaiah has gone naked and barefoot three years as a sign and a token against Egypt and Cush, so the king of Assyria will lead away the captives captives of Egypt and the exiles of Cush, young and old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt. Then they will be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush, their hope, and Egypt their boast. So the inhabitants of this coastland will say in that day, Behold, such is our hope, where we fled for help, for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria, 
and we, how shall we escape? And so all, what he's doing is Isaiah is warning them against not making an ally with Egypt. <laughs> In other words, Judah, you need to look to the Lord alone for your help. Don't go to Egypt because this is what's going to happen. And he just prophesies through Isaiah and even through this sort of taking off his outer garments and taking off his shoes. He's saying, this is what's going to happen to the Egyptians in time. They're actually going to be led off by the who? Assyrians. And so Judah was wanting to go to Egypt to get help to defend against who? The the Assyrians. So he's just saying that don't turn there. This is what's going to happen to them. That's going to be a false hope if you go there. If you're looking to Egypt for refuge, that's not going to that's not going to do anything for you because ultimately they're going to come down. So God had used Assyria to bring judgment on this Egyptian city, but Assyria, and this is what we've gone back to, we talked about in the in the um, first part of, of this chapter, that Assyria had been un- unnecessarily cruel in the process. Now, Nahum mentions the cruelties of the siege here. He mentions several things. One, the dashing of children to pieces in the streets. Now, why would they do that? Because Assyria was known for coming and uh, either they would come and they would actually and, and stay, some of them would stay put and they would intermarry with the local people and they would sort of control that area that way. Or in some cases, they would cart people off into captivity. But why kill the young children? Just, just to guess. I mean, I would, okay, that'd be one, one reason. Okay, what would, what would be another one? If you were going to take people away, which it does say in the text that that is what they're going to do, they're going to actually take these people captive. Why would they? That's right. Uh, the children would, would not have survived. I mean, if you, if you look at, um, yeah, well, we don't want to go back that far. That's a lot of slides back. Um, but you know, from where Nineveh is located, to, now this is the Egypt. This is the furthest they made it into Africa was the city of Thebes, in the upper Egypt. That's a long. That's a long trip. Now, how many of you have ever gone to Florida with your kids? You got young kids. You made a six-hour trip to Florida. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Can you imagine taking all those kids? There's just no way. They're not going to deal with that. I'm just saying there's a very practical reason here. Cruel nonetheless, right? I mean, it's just a, it really we don't care about human life. You know, it's, a, it's an inconvenience. This is an inconvenience. Just kill all the children. And so they do this. They exterminate them on the spot. They, they end up gambling. Um, this gambling carries on for the choice captives. He mentions this, the binding and the change of the notable. Um, you know, all these things going on. So this destruction of Thebes again, had taken place in Nahum's recent past. And what this does is it affords him a vivid striking point of application to the judgment that is going to come to Nineveh for her continued wickedness. Okay, so he just, he says, listen, this is what you guys just did to Thebes. You just murdered their, the kids. You just, you just gambled for the best men. You just carted these people off into captivity. And Thebes in that day was considered as great as, uh, you know, Nineveh, you know, New York, L.A. You know, it's just like this. I mean, they were both great cities from the perspective of men. And so he's just using that to say, listen, you treated them in this way, and these things are going to come back on you. It's going to come back on your own head. So what will be Nineveh's portion of judgment? Verse 11, you too will become drunk. You will be hidden. 
you too will search for a refuge from the enemy. So, so he says, you, in Nineveh, you're going to drink. Now, I, I, we have talked about his, he did mention drinking and drunkenness um, earlier in, in the book. And that was really, uh, that was really a reference to the fact uh, in that particular instance where he's saying that you're, you're going to be unprepared when, when, the, when, when the enemy comes to overtake the city. You're going to be like drunk men who don't have any sense, don't have any discernment, don't see the danger. Um, sort of like Cooper sitting in a mud puddle, you know. It's kind of that you're just going to be out there splashing in the water, and but there's danger all around. That's kind of the imagery there that he uses to say you're going to be drunk. But in this case, it's, I think it's a little bit different. I don't think this is a reference to the consumption of alcohol. I think this is a reference, and you find this throughout the prophets over and over again. I think he's talking about you're going to drink of God's wrath. You're going to drink of God's wrath. And again, this is a very common form of Im- imagery. Just, just one example, and it's all through Obadiah. Uh, um, it's in Hosea, Jeremiah, uh, Isaiah. Just turn to Jeremiah 25. This is just one example. Jeremiah 25. Uh, 15, for thus says the Lord God of Israel, or or for for thus the Lord, the God of Israel, says to me, take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. They will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. And then I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me drink it, Jerusalem and the cities of Judah and its kings and its princes, to make them a ruin, a horror, a hissing, and a curse, as it is this day, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, his servants, his princes, and all his people, and all the foreign people, all the kings of the land of Uz, all the kings of the land of the Philistines. And then he goes on, Ammon, Tyre, Sidon. I mean, he mentions all these people, Arabia. Uh, go on down to, uh, well, he really goes through a list of them, all of those kingdoms, all those people groups, down through verse 26. And then verse 27 says, You shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Drink, be drunk, vomit, fall, and rise no more because of the sword which I will send among you. And it will be if they refuse to take the cup from your hand to drink, then you will say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, You shall surely drink. <laughs> I think that's the reference here, is that he's saying that, that because he's, he's winding down. I mean, this is, we're coming to the close of the book, and I think he's just saying, You, won't ref- you will not be able to refuse this drink. You are going to drink of the cup of the wrath of God, which sort of just points us right back to where we started, right, in, in chapter 1 of those first few verses. God is a God of vengeance. God is a God of wrath who will bring righteous judgment to those who spurn him. Now, what about the idea that Nineveh will be hidden, it says there in, in, in verse 11? Well, as we mentioned this several, several weeks ago, this, prof, this prophecy was remarkably fulfilled uh, after the destruction of Nineveh. This once mighty city literally disappeared. They went hit. They, they hid. In fact, they hid until 1842. I mean, that's what happened. Is when this city was destroyed, it was literally leveled to the point where we didn't even know where it was until the until 18, the mid 1840s. Uh, for English English archaeologists, French archaeologists dug that up, began to excavate that. So I mean, that's a, that's just a again a, a proof of God's. I mean, the accuracy. Um, and, and the and the literal nature of, of of these of these prophecies. So, in in her hour of trial, he says Nineveh will seek some sort of refuge. 
They'll seek some sort of stronghold, but no one will offer her the needed protection and the immunity from her enemy, the Babylonians. Uh, Interestingly, this word refuge, we've also seen this back in chapter 1, verse 7. It's this term for a strong tower, a stronghold, a safe place, a shelter, a protection. But in chapter 1, 7, who is that? Who is the only refuge and stronghold? The Lord is good, right? It's the Lord who's the refuge. So he's, he's just bringing that word back up to say they're going to seek this, but they're not going to seek it in the right place. They're not going to turn to the Lord for that. They're not going to turn to the Lord for a, to, for a shelter or for protection or for safety. Verse 12, he continues, All your fortifications are fig trees with ripe fruit. When shaken, they fall into the eater's mouth. Again, he's just talking about the ease at which this, this thing is going to happen. I mean, Nineveh is going to be overcome with ease. Her fortresses are going to topple. The outposts of defense would fall just like fruit shaken from the tree. It's just going to be that easy. And notice, when they shake the tree, the fruit doesn't fall on the ground. Right? It doesn't fall on the ground. Where does it go? Right into the mouth of the person that's shaking the tree. I mean, that's, that's, that's the ease in which it's going to happen. He goes on, verse 13, Behold, your people are women in your midst. The gates of your land are open wide to your enemies. Fire consumes your gate bars. So Nahum is basically saying here that Nineveh's warriors will not stand in battle. They're just not going to stand. They're going to cave. That the, the courage of the armies of Nineveh is going to fail. And he mentioned this back in, let me get there. Uh, Chapter 2, down in verse 10, where he talks about this. She is emptied. She's talking about about the city here. She is emptied, yet, yes, she is desolate and a waste. Hearts are melting. Knees are knocking. Also, anguish is in the whole body, and all their faces have grown pale. It's just fear. They're terrified. They're just not going to have the courage to stand. In fact, and I don't say this, this is in a derogatory way but they're going to be like women I mean, that's, I think that's what he's saying is, is that they are the men who are supposed to defend the city are going to act like women who are they're going to be terrified they're going to shrink back they're, they're going to be terrified and they're going to ultimately abandon their posts which will leave the city open and vulnerable and accessible so the Babylonians are just going to they're going to come in. Again, some people, and I mentioned this when we talked about the siege, some people think this lasted for, a, for 12 months, 15 months. Other people say it was three weeks. I mean, it's just a lot of, you know, it's hard to pinpoint. I, 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 really, I think it was probably somewhere in that sort of three-month time frame, which in that day would have been fairly quick, actually, I mean, to, to, take, to lay siege to a city. Sometimes these things did go on for months and months and months, especially a city like Nineveh. But it's actually because of the fear. People are not going to stay put. They're not going to do their assigned jobs. They're going to drop their stuff and they're going to run, which is going to make this this thing uh, go down a lot quicker. And eventually, when the enemy does come inside the city, they do burn it completely. And this this is historically proven. I mean, that when they excavated the city, there's proof of this everywhere in the city that things were burned. So this is just again amazing accuracy. Verse 14, he says, Draw for yourself water for the siege. Strengthen your fortification. Go into the clay and shred the mortar. Take hold of the brick multi. 
these are he's commanding them, and it's 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 another taunt. Um, he, he's addressing this to the city of Nineveh, and he's sort of mockingly urging them to prepare for a long siege, knowing full well that the invading army is at hand and that any preparations that they make will be too late. So he's kind of saying, yeah, go ahead and do that. Yeah, go ahead. I tell you, get, get your water because you're going to need it. It could, be a, it's going to, it could be a long time if you're, going to wear, if you're going to weather this out, if you're going to survive. I mean, that's, it's a, that's a, 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 an essential commodity. So he throws these five verbs out, the draw, strengthen, go, tread, take hold, all those things. They're, they're sort of, it's, it's just his way of sort of mocking them and saying, listen, this priceless, indispensable commodity water, you can store that up. You need to be ready to repair the breaches because there's going to be some. You better make sure you've got plenty of bricks available to fill the holes and the gaps so when they actually do breach the city wall, you've got to be able to, to repair those things and to fortify those areas. But, but again, in the end, he's just saying, you can do that. You just go ahead. You go for it. But he knows that that's not really going to do anything for them. That whatever they do to prepare for this Babylonian attack, nothing's going to prevent their downfall. So he continues there in verse 15. Their fire will consume you. The sword will cut you down. It will consume you as the locust does. Multiply yourself like the creeping locust. Multiply yourself like the swarming locust. You have increased your traitors more than the stars of heaven. The creeping locust strips and flies away. Your guardsmen are like the swarming locust. Your marshals are like hordes of grasshoppers settling in the stone walls on a cold day. The sun rises and they flee and the place where they are in is not known. Locust, locust, grasshopper, what is all this stuff? Uh, well, it's all throughout these three verses. It's actually, he, he uses it in different ways. Uh, and, it's, and there are different words. There's three different words here for this. In fact, in Scripture, there's probably a dozen different words for locusts. All right, why are there so many different words for the locusts? Because they don't like them. You know, when you don't like something, you can think of all kinds of things. To call that thing, you can heap adjective upon adjective. When you don't like something, you're like, that, no good, dirty, rotten. Well, that's kind of, it was almost like the locusts and the locusts, the grasshoppers and the little locusts and the big locusts and the medium-sized locusts. I mean, they just hated these things. And so what he does here is he brings this, again, a very familiar thing to those living in that particular day. He uses it at least to illustrate three things. And there might even be a fourth. But at least three predictions, and here they are. One is that the invading army will descend and devour the Ninevites like a swarm of locusts. That's one word picture he's got going. Is that when the Babylonians come in, it's going to be, they're going to come in and when they fly away, there's, there's nothing left. Okay, that's one. Another prediction is that all of the wealth that the merchants of Nineveh had heaped up through commerce and lucrative trade would be spoiled and carried away. He actually mentions the merchants. And what he's saying is these are the people that generated a lot of the income. So Nineveh is going to look to these sort of material things, their wealth, all these things that they have. They're going to look that way for help, but there's not going to be anything there really left. There's not going to be any substance there. That's all, that's all going to be carried away. So that's, that's sort of another idea or picture he has going. And then he mentions at least another one here, which is, the idea that the princes, the prediction that the princes and the military leaders would be like locusts whose wings are stiff in the cold. There's this winter, it's cold weather, their wings get stiff and so they don't fly. But then when the sun comes out, 
they get a little, right, get the blood going, get the juices going, the wings get going, and, and they fly away. But in this case, he's actually talking about Nineveh's military leaders. So at first, the imagery is that the enemy, they're the locusts coming in, right, devouring, and then they leave, and, it, and they're gone, and they leave nothing behind. Then he talks about the locusts actually being sort of the material things that the Ninevites have and possess, that those things are going to, in a sense, sprout wings and fly. And then he talks about their actual princes and military leaders in Nineveh, that they're going to be like these locusts or these grasshoppers whose wings are stiff in the cold, but then all of a sudden when the sun comes up, they get invigorated and they fly away, providing no help in Nineveh's hour of disaster. The summary, everything is going to fail them. The merchants are going to fail them. The money is going to fail them. The bureaucrats are going to fail them. The military is going to fail them. The military, their men are going to act like women and run. Their bureaucrats are going to, whoop, I'm out of (laughs) here. They're going to get the wings going, and they're not going to stay behind. And so as the Babylonian army comes in, they just don't meet any resistance, and they just completely destroy the city. Verse 18, your shepherds are sleeping, O king of Nineveh, or Assyria. Your nobles are lying down. They're not lying down, by the way, to take a rest, just to take a nap because they're exhausted, and they're not sleeping. They're not getting a nap. Your people are scattered on the mountains, and there is no one to regather them. So he's just. this is this idea that when the smoke of battle and when the fire clears, Death is everywhere. The shepherds are sleeping, okay, which means they are, and this is a, this is a common usage of that idea in Scripture, they're dead, okay? The nobles and the officials and the viceroys are all lay, lying down, not getting a rest, but they're dead. And the mountains on the north of, of Assyria, the north side of Assyria, will be filled with those who have fled and been scattered, so, and this is what happened. I mean, it isn't like in, this, in these days that one city fell and the whole Assyrian Empire just, you know, okay, we surrender. It was, it was a gradual thing, but obviously the fall of Nineveh was a big part of the Assyrian collapse. And so what happened is a lot of the people that did flee into the mountains, many of these empires would, would, would revi- be revived because the people would scatter. And in time, another leader of sorts would raise up and would regather the people and sort of reconstitute the people, but the problem in this situation is that he says there won't be anybody to do that. There's not going to be a leader to gather these people back together. And so this will be that mighty blow that comes against the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire, because of the downfall of Nineveh, will be fractured. And verse 19 says, There is no relief. There is no relief for your breakdown. Your wound is incurable. All who hear about you will clap their hands over you, for on whom has not your evil passed continually? So Nineveh's wound is a fatal wound. Nineveh's sickness is incurable. She cannot be rehabilitated. She cannot be revived. She cannot be healed. And this is a fitting end. All the nations rejoice over her judgment, clapping their hands with revengeful joy, because Nineveh is reaping what she has sown. Now, that brings us to the end of the book. Um, let me just give you 
in the next five minutes, let me give you some closing thoughts here as we just sort of, if you've been with us, hopefully you have been with us for a number of weeks as we, we started out here months ago. What are some of the things that we've learned from our study of this book? And I'm just going to give you, I just jotted some of these things down last night. Uh, and we've hit them along the way. But just to sort of summarize all that we've talked about in, in previous, previous weeks. One, the Assyrians were a wicked bunch. And we bear the family resemblance. Right? Remember the Adams family? We're all a part of the Adams family, right? Um, it's, one, it's, it's easy to look at the enemies and to say, oh, man, look at all that wickedness. But Judah's failure in all this was that they could easily pick out the idolatry and the sin of the people around them but not recognize the sin and idolatry in their own lives, which is why they were ultimately carried away and judged. Okay? The Assyrians were a wicked bunch, and we bear the family resemblance. Second thing I've noted was just God is sovereign, right? God, I mean, this is so clear throughout the book, and it's in every book of the, of the Bible. God is sovereign over nature. God is sovereign over the nations. And then God's sovereign rule over the nations is righteous. His, his, his rule is righteous. His, his, his sovereignty is righteous. His retribution that comes upon Nineveh matches and corresponds to what she has done. And he makes that point. God isn't just willy-nilly and just throwing judgment out. I mean, the nation of Assyria deserved everything that they got. Although God had used uh, Assyria to judge Israel, to judge the ten tribes of the north, Assyria and Nineveh attributed their success to their own power and were held accountable for their own pride and cruelty and violence. Do not be deceived, right? God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this will he also reap. Another one is just simply, our God is a God of wrath. And again, this is something, that's, this thread is all through these three chapters. God takes sin seriously. So seriously that he would never overlook sin to save anyone. But rather, he would pour out his wrath on his only son. He hates sin. He hates sin in the lives of the pagans. He hates sin in, the, in your life and in my life. Don't think that God has a lower standard just because you're saved. All right? You th- if, you th- if you think that's the case, then you don't fully comprehend what happened at Calvary. God would never overlook sin to save anyone. But he poured out in love his wrath upon his own son to save us. The last one I had down is the only refuge from God's wrath is God himself. It's interesting, in chapter 3, verse 11, it says that Nineveh sought to find refuge from God's judgment, right? And that is what we need, right? When we say, I've been saved, that's what we mean, right? We've been saved from God's wrath, from his judgment. What we learn in chapter 1, verse 7, it is, it is the fact that it is the Lord himself who is a stronghold and a place of safety and protection, you put the two together, you put 311 and 17 together, and what you learn is that the only refuge from God's wrath is God himself in Christ. It's the only way. And if I were going to add one more, and I thought about this drinking my coffee on the way to church this morning, and we've made this point again several times, is God's protection of his people, his commitment to his people. Because of that chapter 1, verse 7, where in the midst of the promise of all this judgment and all of this retribution and all this 
this, this, this uh, vengeance upon Assyria, we have this statement, the Lord is good. And that God, even though he hates sin in the life of every believer, when he brings discipline and brings the consequences of those sins into the life of a person that loves him and knows him and he knows them, that there's different intentionality behind that. That when God chastises, when he, when, he, when he judges me in a way for if I go and sin this afternoon and I, and I experience a guilty conscience and I experience sorrow and despair and anxiety and even some outer things that come, the, the rod of men, whatever I experience as a consequence of my sin as a Christian, it's, it has a direct, there's a focus behind that. And the focus is he's making me more like Christ and he's humbling me and he wants me to continue to be faithful. He wants me to be obedient to those to those covenant stipulations, those, those things that say, I'm a child of God. And if I know him, if I love him, I will keep his commandments. And he's holding me to that. And he loves me enough to hold me to that. And so God doesn't have a, standard's not lower for us if we're Christians. But when God does bring consequences for sin into our lives, it's his intention behind that is to purify us and to make us more dependent upon him. So, again, it's a, it's a book. It's been great. A uh, lot of war, a lot of blood, a lot of beatings, a lot of cuttings, just mowing people down, I mean, all that. But hopefully through that, I mean, again, we've just been awakened to the fact that we serve a God that is not just a God of love, folks. He's a God of righteousness and justice and holiness. And we need to worship him. We need to worship him for those things. Any final comments before we uh, dismiss? Okay, next Sunday, schedule, 8.30 and 10.30. Week after that, most likely Jay Cribb will be subbing in. And then the week following, we will begin our series in the Psalm, which will prob- Psalms, which will probably take us through the end of the summer. So uh, we're going we're gonna to look at all of them. We're going to look at a lot of them and then just how to interpret the Psalms in general. Uh, I think it'll be a, a great... Uh, great blessing for all of us. So, okay, folks, have a great afternoon.